0: Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. All right, I want you to take your Bibles turn to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the subject, I believe, in a hill called Mount Calvary. The Gaithers wrote a song back in the 70s. I uh, first heard Truth sing it in, I think, 1972. Still got great lyrics and great words to it. It says, I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe that the Christ who was slain on the cross has the power to change lives today. For He saved me completely, and a new life is mine. That is why, by the cross, I will stay. Paul's writing. He's been writing in two chapters defending his uh, apostolic ministry and the message of the gospel. Now, he's throwing a curve. He confronts the Galatians with a series of questions that they really don't have answers to. He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, "'You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified?' This is the one thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, which was one of the first paraphrases that came out in the 20th century, said, Oh, he paraphrases it this way Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, some sorcerer has cast a spell. Surely you can't be so idiotic. The message says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Now, here's what Paul is saying. Heresy always has a hook on the end of the line. Something that it baits you with and catches you with, and then it lures you in. A- and Paul is overwhelmed by this thinking that is denying the cross, and so he, his questions are partially rhetorical. He knows the answer, but he wants them to see the answers. He wants them to see what's happening to them, is that these false teachings have come from a deceiving spirit. Now, while the term backslidden is not in the Old Testament except for Jeremiah and Hosea, and it does not appear in the New Testament, we know what that term means. The term legalism does not actually appear in the New Testament, nor does the term rapture, but we understand what those terms mean. Legalism is somebody who goes back to living by the law, having been saved by grace, but they go back to living by the law. Now, here's the problem. Some people backslide into sin. Some people backslide into Cult groups, they start out in a church and they get influenced by some cult group. That's one of the reasons why we're doing Hot Topics on Wednesday night is because people that say, oh yeah, I was raised in a church, but they get deluded or deceived by somebody that comes and knocks on their door and and twists the scripture. But I've found more people that backslide into legalism, into trying to keep rules to make their lives acceptable. And whatever form backsliding takes, it's a desertion of the gospel. You know, I, I love fireworks. I'm a fireworks nut. You know, I just, you know, I can remember as a kid, I'd buy bottle rockets and stick them inside those, you know, 10-cent Coke bottles and shoot them off. And my mother would say, "You're going to burn the house down. And so, I, you know, I just, I just love fireworks. But here's what's sad to me, is to see people that start off in the Christian life like fireworks and they hit like a like a dud i mean they go off like a rocket i mean they're they're excited they want to talk to everybody and you see them a few years later and they've just settled in i love what vance havner said he said i love to meet a new christian before he's met too many theologians and gotten around too many church people. You know, I, I still remember when I, when I gave my heart to Christ. I, I, I remember the, the little old lady, bless her heart, she was sincere. But she just about, you know, killed it. She said, you know, I was crying. I was excited about what God was doing to me. And she walked up to me and she patted me on the face. She said, that's okay, son. You'll get over it. I want to tell you something. She had long since gotten over it. And you could tell. I don't ever want to get over it. I don't want to get over what Christ did in me. I still want to have the joy and the enthusiasm and the idealism that God gave me when He saved me. I I don't want to get to know so much that I'm dull and, and that I have no passion for the things of God. Some people are like what Stuart Briscoe says, an old iron bed, firm at both ends and sagging in the middle. Some of you remember going to your grandmother's house and you got in that old iron bed in her house, and you know, it's, and then you got in it, and then you had to kind of like get a ladder to get out of it. You know, it just hidden, the mattress was 80 years old, and it was feathered, and it just sunk. And, it, and some people are like that. They get, they, oh, I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But they get down in the middle and they get bogged down. Maybe it's a besetting sin. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's legalism. But Paul is now dealing with the Galatians who started out like gangbusters, but but now they're hitting like a dud. So chapters 3 and 4, he defends the gospel doctrinally, and he uses a lot of words that we're going to look at tonight. First of all, he says that they're foolish. This word describes acting in a way that manifests a lack of wisdom. Acting in a way that manifests a lack of wisdom. No discernment. Carelessness. Now, this happens in two ways. If if we're foolish, first thing that happens is we're not thinking. We're not thinking. We don't have discernment. We're not praying through what's just happened, what we've been approached with, what somebody has said, or or what the opportunity might be. And that's one of the things that, that I'm praying for for my own life is that I have wisdom to know the difference between good and better and best. That I have the wisdom to know between what's a good opportunity and what's a God opportunity. Because there can be light years of difference in those. And so sometimes we, we hit like a dud because we just don't think. And then when we wake up, we realize, what was I thinking? You ever said that? What in the world was I thinking when I did that, when I made that decision, when I committed to do that? Not thinking. Secondly, foolish emotions. Foolish emotions, self-oriented emotions that make us think going to church and being a Christian is about how I feel. Well, that makes me feel good. That makes me feel comfortable. And in verse 3, if I can just kind of walk through verse 3 here, he says, But because you fool, you're foolish, you lack discernment, and you've bought the lie that you can be saved supernaturally, but that you live the Christian life naturally in your flesh, that you complete in your flesh what God started in the Spirit, and that's not possible. Paul says it's foolish for you to think that. Look at this word, bewitched. The word bewitched means a charm or, or fascinated in a misleading and flattering way. You've been fascinated in a misleading and flattering way somebody says, oh, you would do wonderful at this, or oh, you'd be great at this, oh, you just can't imagine, and they flatter, you know what flattery is? Flattery is an appeal to our egos. And God never appeals to our egos. He's trying to get rid of our egos so He can be alive in us. And flattery always appeals. He says, you've, you've been bewitched. You've, you've had the, uh, you, your eyes clouded by all this flattery that's been given to you. And what Paul is doing now where he's been talking about the Judaizers, now he's focusing on the Galatians. He said, I'm not talking about those people that flattered you. I'm talking about you and how you responded to it. You were bewitched. You looked away from the cross. You thought that, uh, well, you didn't think Have you ever said that to your kids? You weren't thinking. You know, have you ever done anything? I know none of you have. I know I'm the only one. Have you ever done anything and you knew that the reason that you goofed up is because you weren't thinking? You weren't thinking about the moment. You weren't thinking about the consequences. You weren't thinking about your actions. You weren't thinking about how it would affect anybody else. And and Paul says, you've been bewitched and, and you're not thinking And you need to start thinking about what's going on around you. Don't get caught up in this foolishness. And then he talks about the danger of forgetting the cross. Verse 1, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, it's emphatic here as Paul's talking to them that he's saying to the Galatians, you of all people who know the gospel, who have heard the gospel, who have seen me and heard me teach you the gospel, who have been trained in the things of God, you of all people, how could you do this? Christ was publicly portrayed. It's used of posting a sign, a placard in the marketplace for all to read. He says it's obvious what Christ did. It's obvious what Jesus did for us. He was posted like an announcement on a cross, and, and you saw it, and you heard it, and He was portrayed as crucified. That's a perfect passive participle for those of you that are interested. It's a, it means it's a historical fact with continuing results. It wasn't just that Jesus was crucified, nice historical fact. That has continuing results, and you know that. Why are you just thinking, that happened in the past, I've got to do something different now? I've got to get a method. I've got to get a system now that that will help me. I've I've got to get some rules to live by. Why don't you live in the light of the cross? Look at verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So, all of these questions that follow are built off the question in chapter 2. Paul is basically asking them, How were you saved? Now, the answer to the question to how a person is saved is also the answer to a question of how a person lives after they're saved. You see, the Christianity is continuous. It doesn't change midstream. We don't get saved by grace through faith, and then suddenly we get sanctified in another way. The nature of salvation and the nature of sanctification are the same. There's no distinction between them. It's all of God. God is doing the work in us. It's, it's not that physically everything is determined, but spiritually other things are along the way. Now, I, I, I know that can sound like a confusing statement, but what it means is when the Holy Spirit came inside of you and you were, as the old phrase, born again, you don't get born again, 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 again. You don't get born again, and then you, do, you, then you become something else. When you become something, you are that for life. It's evidence by the way we live our life. By their fruit, you'll know them. And so what Paul is saying is, how in the world did you receive the Spirit by faith? And now you think it's by the works of the law. Do you think that God changed midstream? Do you think that God changed His plan? God is not going to be pleased with your flesh. He wasn't pleased with it before you're saved. He's not pleased with it after you're saved. Now, let me give you four things that Romans says about the flesh. Number one, Romans 8, it is sinful and condemned. Verse 3. It is sinful and condemned. In my flesh dwells no good thing. The flesh is sinful and condemned. Secondly, It leads to death, verse 6, Romans 8, 6. What's going to happen? The flesh has to die. And when we are resurrected, we are resurrected with a new body because this old body is corrupted and fallen and it has to be redeemed. The flesh is condemned to death. Thirdly, it is hostile toward God, verse 7. It is hostile toward God. It's against God. It fights against God. That's why man wants to say, if I do good works, if I do good deeds, that'll get me into heaven because it's hostile to our flesh to say, I must throw myself on utter dependency on God for salvation. And then, fourthly, it cannot please God. The flesh cannot please God. Now, here's my opinion. I think one of the most sinful things we can do as Christians is to try to serve God in our flesh. I think in the eyes of God, it's just as sinful as immorality. Now, the consequences may be different. Let me tell you why I think it's the most sinful thing. Because serving God in the flesh is acceptable in the church. It's acceptable. And you can do it and get away with it. And you can do it every Sunday. You can teach in your flesh. You can preach. You can sing in your flesh. You can do it for your own ego and your own uh, edification. You can do it because it makes you feel good, because you like the attention. You can do all those things. You can do anything in the church in the flesh, and I think that's sinful in the eyes of God. Because our service is to be the outflow and the overflow of the inflowing Holy Spirit. We've got every method and form and rule and regulation. I I, I mean, but you know what it is. I mean, we got the nasty nine and the filthy five and the dirty dozen. and And we define sin as what I do that you don't do that I don't approve of. And we can serve God in the energy of our flesh. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Listen to me because of me, not because of Christ. And Paul says, that's not the way you get saved, and that's not the way you get sanctified, and that's, that's not the way you serve. We, we know that works won't save us. Why do we buy the lie that they sanctify us, that they make us better in the eyes of God? It just becomes wood, hay, and stubble. And so in chapter 3 and verse 1, he uses this word, crucified, something happened in the past that embraces the present. And here's one of the reasons why I think we bind to works and bind to keeping rules and bind to the law is that we see Calvary as a historical fact where God at the cross saved us out of hell, but it's an inadequate view of the cross because the cross didn't just save us out of hell, it set us on a different path completely. I mean, if if works could save us, Jesus died in vain and the cross was a waste and a shame. But it's where we have to go is to the cross daily for our living. Verse 4, did you go through this whole, the message says, did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? Haven't you learned anything? Can you imagine who Paul's talking to? Paul's talking to a lot of Jewish believers Who have come out of Judaism, who have, some of them have memorized the first five books of the Bible, and they're sitting in church with Gentiles who have not been raised in the scripture. They don't know anything about the Bible. They've come out of paganism and idolatry, and they're sitting there and they're saying, Well, if you knew everything I knew. And they're self righteous, and they're haughty, and they're arrogant. And they're trying to influence these Gentiles to say, you know, if you start keeping the rules and if you check all the boxes, and if your little blue envelope you turn in on Sunday morning has all the boxes checked, then you're really a good Christian. You know, you can check all the boxes and be in your flesh. You can check all the boxes and live in sin. It's not about checking boxes. It's about a holiness and a righteousness before God. And so then he comes to the danger of not appropriating the cross. And there are two prominent doctrines in Galatians: the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Spirit. The only person who can make the cross a reality in my life is the Holy Spirit. I can't. I have to die so that he can live in me. Now according to the Bible, John three verses one through eight, First 1 Peter 1: 1, 22 through25, I have two spiritual parents. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. Romans 8 13 says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You see, the Holy Spirit gives birth to Christ in my life, He makes me aware of my need of salvation. And then he enables me to live the life that God demands of me. So these Galatians were exchanging the spirit for legalism. Verse two, did you receive the spirit? That's a definition of salvation. What is salvation? Some people believe, well, when you get saved and then you get the spirit later, Paul is identifying that salvation and the receiving of the spirit happen at the same moment. He said, did you receive the Spirit? Did you get saved? Are you really saved? If you're saved, it didn't come by keeping the law. If you know you're saved, it doesn't come by keeping the law. It comes by the Spirit of God. John Stott says, the law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us obey. The gospel brings promises and bids us Believe. So let me do a couple of things here. First of all, victory over sin at salvation is by whom? The Spirit. If I'm going to have victory over sin at the moment of my salvation, if my if the penalty and the power of sin is going to be taken away at salvation, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm going to live. In victory over the power of sin, in sanctification, it's by the power of the Spirit. I don't live in victory by keeping rules. I live in victory by yielding daily to the Holy Spirit at Jesus as Lord, surrendering myself to Him, dying daily to myself. And folks, self dies hard. Self doesn't want to die our flesh doesn't want to die. Terry and I were talking to a couple that have been around a long time. They've been—he was a pastor for fifty years and now retired. They've moved to North Carolina. And then I talked to a young guy that was in his thirties, and this is what he said to me. I thought it was very interesting. He said, "You know," he said, "I came up in the latter years of Manly Beasley and Ron Dunn and Bertha Smith." when they always talked about dying to self and the crucified life and living in holiness and and walking in holiness, and they talked about the Spirit-filled life, and I heard that, and he said, I haven't heard it in our churches in a long time. It's so old, but it's been so forgotten. It's become new. It is sad to me that somebody has to say that living in the power of the Holy Spirit sounds like a new truth. When that is the only truth that we have to live by. it's it's, It's not the stuff we do. It's not being cute. It's not being gimmicky. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Johnny Hunt said in his last message on Monday night, there is a sense in which the cloud of blessing is moving off the Southern Baptist Convention and moving away. I want to tell you where God's working. God's working in third world countries because we're too arrogant for Him to work. We're so arrogant and puffed up in ourselves. We think we're God's gift to missions, and we think we're God's gift to everything. And the third world countries are praying for us that we'll have revival. Because... We've got everything. We are rich and in need of nothing. And Jesus said, that's a church that needs to repent. That's a convention that needs to repent. When we think that we are something special because of what we do and what God is looking for people who are something, the being in Christ, the living in Christ, not by keeping the laws and the rules. I, I love this quote. I'm going to give you time to write it down. I don't think it's in your notes. Major Ian Thomas is still alive. He's in his 90s. A- and uh, his book let's see he's got two books, "The Saving Life of Christ," which is a classic book. The other ones uh, the titles "Godliness: Something in Godliness." But they're out together now, two volumes put into one both those books, which are classics. And he and Thomas is in his 90s now. I met somebody that has worked in his organization uh, this week. This is what he said. Lord, I can't. You never said I could. Lord, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. I first heard that statement in about 1979, Lord, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. And when you read Galatians, you can't read it without running into the Holy Spirit. Hey, there's no way to get around the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians. I mean, He's all over the place. Chapter 3 and verse 2, we receive the Spirit by faith. We receive the Spirit by faith. Chapter 4 and verse 29, regeneration is by the Spirit. Regeneration is by the Spirit. Chapter 4 and verse 6, the witness of the Spirit. Chapter 3 and verse 3, we began in the Spirit. Chapter 5 and verse 25, we live in the Spirit. Chapter 5 and verse 16, we walk in the Spirit. Chapter 5 and verse 18, we are led by the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 5, we hope in the Spirit. Chapter 5 and verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit should characterize us. Chapter 5 and verse 17, the opposition of the Spirit is the flesh. Chapter 5 and verse 8, we sow to the Spirit. And chapter 3 and verse 5, the Spirit ministers to us. I mean, the Spirit is the source of our life. You say, well, I thought Jesus was the source of our life. Same thing. The three are one. It's the same thing. The Spirit is the source of our life. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Does He then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That word provides is an illustration of what happened in the arts in the Greek culture. The word provides can also be the word supplies or completely furnishes. Here's what that word picture is. It it would be that a patron of the arts would pay for everything necessary so that the choirs could perform and exist. And so there would be a patron or patrons in the cities who would say, I want to make sure that we have the arts in our city. Now, this is a secular term. I want to make sure that we have the arts, and I want to make sure that we have the singers and the, and the orchestra. And so they would fund, they would fully supply what was needed. In fact, the Greek word means to choreograph. It's a word where we get our word Choreography. They would choreograph. They would ensure this. And, and it is a picture Paul uses to say, just as the wealthy patrons would say, what does it cost for us to have a choir? The Holy Spirit provides everything we need to be a life of praise to God. So just as these wealthy patrons would pay so that they could hear the music, so the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus was paid for us and he provides for us everything we need to live the life. Now, then then there's this phrase, works miracles among you. And there are people who have taken that and tried to use it in ways that Paul didn't intend. Not that he didn't intend miracles. I believe in miracles, but I don't believe that a miracle a day will keep the devil away. Here's actually what it says. Literally, it says, does acts of power in you not among you. Among you is not even a, a really good translation. He does acts of power in you. You say, well, I've never had a miracle. Yes, you have. You've been saved. You've had a miracle. The greatest miracle that ever happens is the salvation of a sinner who becomes a saint. The transforming power of the gospel is the greatest miracle. Jesus healed people with a word or with reaching down and making clay and spittle and putting it on people's eyes, or or with telling them to go do something. Jesus healed people, but to save us, he had to die. Miracles didn't cost Jesus anything. Salvation cost him his life. And when you look back on your life, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to find that God's done some miracles in your life. Some of them at the moment you didn't recognize as a miracle, but I guarantee you they were. I I look back on things in my life that I thought, in the moment I thought it was coincidence or chance, and I look back now and see the hand of God miraculously working in my life. Just a quick illustration. When I got through with college, I was offered a full scholarship to New Orleans Seminary. Landrum Level called my house. Terry and I were staying with my parents for a while. He called and he said, I've got a full-ride scholarship for you if you'll come to New Orleans. Ninety miles away from home, my parents were pumped. They thought, this is great. You know, he can come home on weekends, blah, blah, blah. And I'd gone up to check out Midwestern Seminary. New Orleans was a lot more conservative. Midwestern was a lot more liberal. And I'd gone up to check it out. And God impressed on me that we needed to go to Midwestern 22 hours away. I cannot begin to tell you what our family said to us about how stupid that was for us to go up there. We went to Midwestern. I am convinced today that God miraculously moved in our lives to take us off the easy path and put us on a hard road. We went up there. We had $400 to our name. It cost me $400 to pay a search whatever they are, to get Terry a job working with Aetna, She had to ride the bus into downtown Kansas City. I had an old Vega that when it got cold, I had to start with a screwdriver because the starter wouldn't work right on it. And I would get out in a foot of snow and raise the hood, and she'd have to start cranking the car, and I'd start it with a screwdriver. We'd leave it running, and I'd drive her to the bus stop, and then I would, and then she would catch the bus, and she'd go to work. Now, during that time, I met Bertha Smith and Ron Dunn. It may have just seemed like I was at a meeting to hear somebody preach, and I enjoyed them preaching. But it was a divine appointment. Because it led to one of the greatest friendships I've ever had in my life. You see, it marks you miraculously when you hear a man preach the Friday after he has buried his son who has committed suicide and hear him preach on Romans 8, 28 that all things work together for good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And when you hear a man preach on that after he's buried his son less than a week before, it'll change you. Because what you sit there and say is, first of all, I hope I never have to go through that, but secondly, I wish I had the kind of faith he's got. I wish I knew God like He knows Him. I'm telling you, all through your life, there are miracles. There are miracles that you'll never know until you get to eternity. There are things you've been spared from, protected from, guarded from, that you'll never know until you meet Jesus face to face. And you say, because you were obedient and you didn't take this turn, I saved you from this, I protected you from that. God's doing things in you. But the greatest thing he does in you is when he starts picking the stuff out of you that doesn't look like Jesus and starts making you look more and more and more and more like Jesus that's the greatest miracle. I don't know about you, it's the greatest miracle in me because I know, I know how bad my life stinks before God. I know how many times I've failed. I know how many times I've blown it. And I know that the power of the law is, is to break us, to let us know that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, but the power of the Spirit is to make us The law breaks us because it tells us we're helpless. The the Spirit makes us because He tells us that through Christ we can do all things. I trust me. I like living in the possibilities of the life of the Spirit rather than keeping rules. Because when I keep rules, I never know if I've kept them enough. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? I'm going to close with this illustration. Ron Dunn. Heard him preach this in 1970. He said, one day I went into my office, and he said, I was so exhausted from working and trying to build a church and trying to do things. He said, I just collapsed in my chair and put my face down in my chair. And I said, God, God, I don't have any right to come and talk to you. I don't have any right to pray today. I I, I feel so unworthy. And Ron said it was just like the Spirit of God came into my office and said, Ron, would you feel better about talking to me if you'd read your Bible for two hours this morning? Yes. Would you feel better if you'd prayed for two or three hours today? Lord, you know I would. Would you feel better if you'd led five people to Jesus today? Lord, I'd feel a whole lot better about coming into your presence if, if I'd done all that. And he said, God spoke to me and said, Ron, I don't love you any more or any less because of what you do. I love you because of who I am. That, ladies and gentlemen, is good news. Because when you mess up, God still loves you. When you just do something stupid, God still loves you. When you get at the end of your trying to do good to help God out and find that you just need to throw yourself on the mercy seat of God, that's where He is. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. Thanks for listening and join us next week for another podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church.